Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 1 in the Old Testament. It's a large book. It has 66 chapters. And the last time we finished up our parables, uh, we ended with the rich man and Lazarus. If you weren't here, it's just a great, great parable and a very powerful video on the parable that we uploaded onto the church uh, Facebook group wall. So today we're going to be, it's called Intro to Isaiah. Well, I think it's fitting. It kind of coincides with September. A lot of people are going back to school or starting college. So, you know, they get the intro to chemistry, intro to history. Well, this morning we're going to be an intro to Isaiah. And just a great set-off or a great uh, just springboard to understanding this prophet, this prophet's word, what God showed him. And it's amazing because we're going to go back some... 2,700 years into the past, but when we start listening to him, we see what God says to him about society and how its natural tendency is towards decadence. Uh, For 2,700 years, it's almost going to seem like as we go through this book that he's speaking to our culture today. But again, there was a context, and certainly we can make applications from it. And what happens when we sin? What happens when we mess up? Do we dig our heels in? Do we, you know, stand firm in our way? Or do we repent? And God is trying to tell his people, you know, you're going in the wrong direction, but I love you. I've always loved you, but you've got to turn. You've got to change. I can't continue to allow this bad behavior to happen. So we can see this in a lot of different applications today. We can look at it individually. We could look at it culturally. We can certainly look at it in Isaiah's day, and we're going to look at eight parts to this. So the first thing we're going to look at first out of eight is the overview. And if we could put the map up, the overview. Who are we speaking about? Well, we're speaking about God. Who is the book about? A lot of people mistakenly say Isaiah. That would be a trick question. Um, They're all about God. But Isaiah was the vessel that God used to reach the people. Great prophet, Uh, His name means Yahweh is salvation or the Lord is salvation. He's been called the Apostle Paul of the Old Testament because of his impressive writing styles and communicative skills. The book of Isaiah has been called the miniature Bible as it has 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters, similar to the Old Testament, are about repentance, about, you know, decadence and, and having to come to repentance to change so God can heal Uh, judgment has to come to the wicked at some point. And the last 27 chapters, like the New Testament, declare a message of hope. Isaiah's prophecies speak multitudinously of the Messiah, and his contemporaries were Micah and Hosea. When was this written? Well, Isaiah's ministry spans from approximately 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. and encompasses the reign of four of Judah's kings. Now, Judah, Israel. We know at some point in time, you know, God gave the children of Israel this land, okay? Here's Jerusalem. 
And it, at some point, all of Israel was united. But because of a lot of Solomon's wickedness, what happened was the kingdom divided after his rule was ended. And you had your ten tribes in the north and your two tribes in the south. So southern Israel was called Judah, and northern Israel was just called Israel. Isaiah would have seen a lot of things in his time. You know, I, I went on a, a, a visit, and I met somebody who was 92 years old. And right away, I just think, how much have they seen in their lifetime? You know, that's like the first thing that comes to my mind. They've seen so much. And Isaiah ministered for decades, and he saw a lot as well. He saw the Assyrian invasion of the north and the harassment of the south. He also saw things in his prescience, seeing things before they happened, and that's what prophets were. They were prescient because of God's power. He saw certain kingdoms rise and fall. And check this out. Just a few things to look at is Aram was also known as Syria. Syria is still Syria. It hasn't moved. Sometimes the borders shift here and there over the millennia, but the country is still the same basic country. So what happens is Israel gets harassed by their northern neighbor. Okay? After that, the Assyrians in this area rise to power, and they've come, and they you know, invade, they plunder, things like that. We covered also this in the book of Daniel. If the, the Assyrians comes the Babylonians, right? Nebuchadnezzar, Hammurabi, all those different guys, and they come. So you see this, Isaiah sees this successive rising and falling of different kingdoms. Um, so we, we sort of get a history lesson in addition to what we read in the Bible. Where did this occur? Well, Isaiah spent most of his time in Jerusalem. He ministered to the royal court, but not everybody appreciated him for telling the truth. And you know what? Sometimes that happens today. You have ministries where you get, and really it's the Bible. We should give the hard things and the easy things. We should give the whole counsel of God. But some to gain a great following and great, gain notoriety and even favor with monarchs and important people, they only preach one-sided version of the Bible, which is really not a version at all. How do we know good if we don't know bad? How do we know bad if we don't know good? That's why the Bible gives that whole counsel. Very important. Don't seek out those type of preachers. But in the beginning of his ministry, Isaiah warned both the, southern and, uh, the northern and southern kingdoms. As time went on and the northern kingdom was decimated by the Assyrians, people were expatriated, he focused more on the southern kingdom. Why is this written? Well, repentance was important, just like in my opening. The children of Israel were sinning. They were becoming very decadent, corrupt. The economy was good. Everyone was doing well financially. But that, that pushed them, or that was a precipitator to the demise that they started experiencing spiritually. And it's amazing. We can think, well, I got a good job. You know, the money's coming in. Uh, I'm comfortable. All these things. I'm getting along with my family. But that's not a spiritual indicator. And we're going to see that in the book of Isaiah. Now, he also gave the message of hope, largely through the coming Messiah. Remember, this is pre-Christ, or pre-Christ coming to earth. He also warned the nation to stop trusting in alliances. And that's important as well, because 
Israel, the north and the south, were supposed to be sort of a theocracy. Not like you hear the word today with some of these countries, but a pure one where God was really at the helm, right? Protecting, blessing, all these things. But what the people did was they started to seek out the grass is always greener, something better in their neighbors. And what happened was they would also worship their neighbors' false gods. And they would make alliances with their neighbors instead of trusting God. They would hire mercenaries. And we've seen that even going back to the uh, Revolutionary War. Mercenaries, a lot of countries do that. Hired guns, so to speak. And God's like, listen, I'm here for you. Why do you keep circumventing me and going to other places? So there's really a lot in the overview. Isaiah's death. Well, when we read tradition, we find that under King Manasseh's reign, Manasseh was a horribly wicked king, He didn't appreciate Isaiah's preaching. Let's just put it that way. Jeremiah's preaching wasn't appreciated. A lot of times the Apostle Paul's preaching wasn't appreciated. And look what happened to Jesus Christ. So, again, we have to tell the truth. We have to, there's something wrong. There's something wrong in society. There's something wrong when we look in the mirror. But not a lot of people want to hear that. King Manasseh didn't want to hear it. So he had Isaiah sawn in two. It is different accounts, but um, he had him murdered. And we can see that Hebrews 11.37, the heroes of faith, it speaks generally about those that were sawn in two for their faith. And this is really where we uh, understand what happened to the demise of the prophet Isaiah. Remember, the false prophets were warmly accepted by the nobility, warmly accepted by the king because it reinforced that they could do all the wickedness they wanted and there was no price to pay until, of course, a neighboring Um, army or nation came and and pretty much destroyed them. But then it was too late, right? The Christ in Isaiah, which is really important, this is one of the greatest Old Testament books that speak about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we're going to see that as we get into this. right? You would think that he was right along with Jesus Christ, right next to him, almost like a John the Baptist heralding the Lord's coming. But again, this happened centuries before the Lord came to the earth. Uh, Jesus also quoted Isaiah more than once. It's been said that when Isaiah speaks of Christ, the Messiah, he sounds more like a New Testament writer than an Old Testament prophet. And lastly, this book parallels 2 Kings, which were the historical books, right, of the North and Southern Kingdom. 2 Kings 15, 16, 17, all the way through 21, which coincidentally... I'm going through on Wednesday nights, and I love that. I love that when we talk about something on Sunday and somebody's preaching on Wednesday, you can see the connections there. So it's pretty neat. So let's jump in. Verse 1, it says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So two out of eight is... Isaiah's introduction or Isaiah's resume. Who is he? He tells you. He even tells you who his, his father was. What's his ministry? Right? Who are the, when did he minister? He speaks about all the kings that he served under. And really, he was serving the Lord. But he did, in essence, serve under that royal court because a monarchy had ultimate rule. Verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. 
The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. So three out of, out of eight is, he's like a physician. He's spiritually diagnosing Judah. Now, it does seem, you can look at this one of a few ways, that he's preaching to creation because mankind isn't listening. It's tragic, but humorous at the same time. He could also be calling creation as a witness. God's creation. Look, human beings, the object of God's affection, look what they're doing to their creator. Here's a list of the Lord's grievances. Number one, he raised up the children of Israel, and like prodigal children, they rebelled against him. So take heart if you're a good parent and you've raised up a prodigal. Um, God is the perfect parent, and a lot of his children strayed. Remember, he's given us free will. We don't have to walk in the ways of the Lord. It's a choice. Two, even animals know their owners. He speaks about the ox, the ox and the donkey. Now, there are a lot of very smart animals on the planet, but those probably aren't in the top ten as the brightest. But Israel, the, the, the animals know their owners, their human owners, but Israel doesn't know her God. Chuck Smith tells a humorous story about in Jerusalem there was a crime many years ago, and the man rode in on a donkey, committed the crime, and I guess he felt he, was, he could get caught, so not waiting for his donkey to get on the donkey and ride off, he ran home. True story. So what they did was the authorities came, and they unloosed the donkey, and they followed him to the man's house. <laughs> so... You know, the donkeys are, they're smart. They're smart animals. Well, in that sense, uh, smarter than people sometimes, right? But God's children were behaving worse than simple and not too bright beasts of burden who were smart enough to know their owners. The state of the nation, three, was evil. It was corrupt. You know, and I wonder how far the United States has to, in, in all the things, in all the ways our culture has gotten away from God for many years. I wonder how long it is going to be until God does something. Because he has humbled nations before. Sin has its consequences. Sometimes its own consequences, and then sometimes God's judgment. And four, he compares the nation to a diseased person, to their body, from the head to the foot, with no progress. That's not a really pretty picture from the, you know, the sole of the foot to the head, the whole body is diseased. So what God does is he uses a lot of imagery. 
he uses a lot of diversity of explanations to help the nation understand where they've gone wrong. How bad are we? Well, you're like a completely diseased person from head to foot. Oh, that's not really good, is it? Verse 5, he says, why should you be stricken again? You know, before I was a Christian, I thought, you know, I was part of a religion, and I didn't really read the Bible. I thought that God just was looking to punish me. And that's a, a very wrong view of God. You know, he says, why should you be stricken again? Why do you keep coming to this place? I don't want to do this. I love you, but I have to do this. And there's this, this cycle that's supposed to take root when we sin. The first thing is to repent. And repent involves changing. But we really don't like to change. What we like to change, especially in American culture, is our circumstances. You know, we want our paychecks to be bigger. We want our spouses to listen more. We want our kids to behave. But God says that we need to change. <laughs> Again, not a very popular message, not back then and certainly not now. The people were stubborn. They didn't want to change. They didn't want to stop what they were doing. But that repentance opens the door for forgiveness and restoration. In verse 7, he says that their cities were burned with fire. That border nations, as I showed you the map, border nations would come and cross the borders and attack. They would burn villages. They would loot. They would do a lot of things. And the people st still didn't repent. And in Second Chronicles 28, King Ahaz, one of the more wicked kings, he didn't learn either. Now, this is interesting because there's prophecy, and, and we'll understand some terms as we're in the prophetic books. There's Forthtelling and foretelling. They sound very similar, but forthtelling is telling it like it is. You know, society sees this, God sees that. That's forthtelling. Foretelling is telling about something before it happens. And all of God's prophets did both. They would speak about the condition of, of, of the culture, especially God's people. Then they would also speak about things that happened in the future. And that was big with Isaiah because he spoke about the Messiah. You know, one of the, the greatest, one of the best ways to lead a Jewish person to their Messiah, and many Jewish people that are here today have come this way, is through Isaiah. You can't read it in whatever. The New King James is a, the American Jewish Bible Publication Society, their version. It's the same thing. You can't read it and not come to the conclusion that the Messiah has come. So there's foretelling what's going on, and, and I'm sorry, foretelling what's going to happen, and foretelling what's going on as we speak. So King Ahaz, it, you know, stuff was going on right under his nose. But King Ahaz also had to realize that in the future, the Babylonians were going to come. So you see these, these pictures had kind of layers, right? Layers in time. Verse 9. Sodom and Gomorrah. This is interesting. He says that if, unless he had left a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been made like Gomorrah. And what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, actually they were the, uh, I think, Abnon Zeboim, there were like four different cities on the, you know, on the coast of the, of the dead, which is now the Dead Sea, in Genesis 19, and their wickedness caused God's judgment to have to take place. Um, but Judah's sins were catching up to her. And Isaiah makes a reference. Now, think about today. I mean, think about, I don't know, God goes on, or Isaiah comes up today, and he goes on one of the major news networks, and he starts preaching this stuff to American culture. You think it would be received? Well, they'd probably cut his mic, you know, before he could finish talking. But 
again, it, they didn't appreciate it either, but it was the truth. And just like the expression goes, the truth hurts. It's hurt in my life when someone said it to me, uh, and it, it, I'm sure it's hurt in your life as well. But the problem today is that a lot of you know, people don't understand what God's issues are until they actually go into the Bible. What does he see that's right? What does he see that's wrong? I'm going to go more into this on Isaiah 5 where he says wrong would be called right, right would be called wrong. I think we're there, folks, personally, but I'll save that for later. And he also speaks about the remnant. What is a remnant? A remnant is when even in many cultures, when everything was decadent, everything was chaotic, there was always a small group of people that still were faithful to God. Remember in, in Elijah, right, the prophet Elijah, and he was getting threats from the queen, and he ran and ran and ran, and God got a hold of him. He goes, there's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to those false gods to bow. Go back. There's, there's still a remnant there. When we cover Isaiah 6, he's going to speak about the decadence of the culture, but there's still a remnant. And he, he, he makes a, a figurative explanation to a, a tree stump where things start growing again. So we're going to check that out as well. And you know what? Are we a remnant? Hopefully, in our culture, in Christendom. Listen, there's a lot of money to be made off the back of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of people who are making it. And they're making it big. And they have these worldly techniques that they use. And not all of Christendom is Christian. I covered that in uh, a few books back. Are we the remnant? Are we the people who say we want to, we, and we're going to read this, we want to follow God's word? When the, the, the really smart people today and the intellects are saying it's so outdated and archaic, are we still willing to follow it with all those criticisms? Right? Verse 10, we continue. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. He doesn't let up with that, that imagery. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Now, those courts are not in the judiciary. Those are in the courts of the temple. They're more of a spiritual um, uh, picture. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. Wait a minute. Didn't God set all these things up? We're going we're gonna to catch that. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates... They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Four out of eight is the remedy. Well, their remedy, and their remedy was rote religious rituals, and God said it's a ripoff. Again, the remedy of rote religious rituals is a ripoff. Say that ten times fast. <laughs> they were hearing God's heart, though, 
and their heart was far from God. If you go back all the way to Leviticus 17, God said, I can't even cover your sins unless there's a blood sacrifice. That's how offensive sin is to me. And here he is saying, enough. I don't even want it anymore. It's loathsome. You're, you're, you're incense burning. You're coming to my house to offer things. Because what they were doing was, if anything, they were just, it was like fire insurance. You know, I don't want anything bad to happen to me. I don't want God to be mad at me, but I certainly don't want to change my ways. I don't want to change my lifestyle. And that's interesting. When you come to Christ, right, when the people take that long walk up at the end of service to come to Christ, something has to change. If nothing else, we've lived, and I know when I came forward, a self-directed life. Well, now I want God to direct my paths. You know, coming to Jesus supposedly and saying, you know what, Lord, don't go in that closet, don't go in that room. I don't want anything to change, but I want you. Well, you don't really want him, right? He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And when we take Jesus and reduce him to a little idol that we put in our cabin, in our glass cabinet, so yeah, I have Jesus too. I have all these other things and Jesus. We become polytheists. He becomes a little God in our cadre of gods. And that's, God, you know, God's, he, he won't have that. And this is what the people were doing, this hypocrisy. And religious hypocrisy is the worst type of hypocrisy. There was recently a, a bust in New Jersey of a bunch of guys, some gals, I mean big, FBI. They were stealing from like welfare and social services. And it's sad because a lot of people need that money, but these people didn't. They were getting rich off of stealing all this money. And they had their religious garb as they were being led away. And I, I, my heart sank. It's just more fuel for the world, the unsaved world, to say, look, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. It's like, whoever you are, I don't care what your religion is, it, it must say somewhere you're not supposed to steal, especially from people who need it, okay? Um, but religious hypocrisy was going on back then too. Verse 15, he says, when you spread out your hands, they spread out their hands in prayer, and, and some would make elaborate prayers, and Jesus spoke about this, you know, to maybe a prayer where you're just, and listen, when we do worship, a lot of people raise their hands. That's an awesome thing. It's just their desire to praise the Lord. But what these people were doing is it was completely hypocritical. Their hands were spread. They were, they were praising God supposedly, but it was all an act. It was all a show. Now, we can't see through people, but God can. And he said, look at your hands. Those hands you have spread out towards me, they're full of blood. Now, they weren't literally full of blood, but the things that they were doing were horrific. Horrific. And again, many can make a good, and that's the worst thing. They can make a good pretense of their lives and cover it with religion, and they, they look so spiritual. But God said, I can see through this. And nobody likes when you can see through them. And, and they get very uncomfortable, right? And, and sometimes when we read the Bible, we read some verses and go, gee, we don't say to anybody in our minds, we think, that's me. That's a good thing because there's hope there. You know, the person who can go through a sermon on any scripture and just be Teflon, nothing, no emotion, no conviction, nothing. That's a scary place to be because nothing's getting through to the heart, right? A good solution, verse 16 and 17, is to figuratively wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away evil, treat each other better. And what did God always say? 
What did God always say? We covered this even in the parables, in the last parable, is he said, take care of the poor. You know, take care of the fatherless. Um, they may not be your kids, but be a good example. Be somebody that they could look up, up to because God knows there's many predators out there that are going to try to gain their trust and do something horrific. And I got to tell you, folks, there was a point in time where in this country, people of faith were the ones helping the poor. And over time, the people of faith gave it over to the government. And sometimes the attitude is, well, I pay taxes. Listen, the, the poor are always going to be among us, Jesus said. And I, you live long enough, you, you'll know that God has allowed your path to cross with somebody less fortunate. Yeah, great, we pay our taxes, I pay mine too. Every year I have an accountant that does it, so I don't miss something. But you know what? There's still, there's still empathy, there's still compassion, you know? And it's only money, it's only stuff. The poor is among us, folks. There's a guy who wrote a book, Who Really Cares? His name is Arthur Brooks. He came to writing this book with a preconceived mo notion, and it was basically, who's the most generous in America? And he found that basically, and not all, but the large majority were middle-class Christians who gave a large percentage of what they have. Now, there's a lot of loud people out there on TV they're supposedly advocates for the poor, and somehow they make a lot of money. They've gotten rich off the poor. That's a weird thing. You know, there is some, I'm going off on a tangent here, but there is some, even for the hurricane, there's some places we just won't donate. Charitynavigator.org is a nonpartisan website, and it basically looks at all the charities, even the most popular ones, sees what their administrators are making and how much on the dollar is going to help the poor people. And I won't name names, but you can just, they do a lot of good research. They have pie charts, they cut everything down. And there's some of these places that their administrators are making $700,000 a year. And maybe 25 cents on the dollar is going to help people. Folks, do your homework. We do our homework, you know, as a church. We're just not going to shell something out unless that money is going to help people. But the poor, you know, a lot of loud people about poor, poor, poor. But you find out that what they give is a very small percentage of what they make and their holdings. So, listen, you could say, too, I'm, well, I'm middle class. I'm barely making it. You've got to trust God. You know, God will put those people in our paths. The poor is, as Christians, is our responsibility. And back in these days, they were not caring for the widow. They weren't caring for the fatherless. And the justice went to those who had means. And the, the judges were corrupt too. So, move on from that. Verse 10. He continues with this pejorative of the leaders of Judah. Judah calling them, you leaders of Sodom and Gomorrah. And basically, that's where they were going. They were going in that direction. Everybody knew who Sodom and Gomorrah was. So it wasn't a nice thing to call someone a leader of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, that, that, those cities were destroyed a long time ago by this time. But everybody got what he was trying to say there. Verse 18, we continue. He says, come now. This is, this is so cool. God's speaking to his people through the prophet. Come now, let us... Reason together, says the Lord. Look at all the different ways he's trying to get their attention, even intellectually. You know, I mean, 
right? You can reach somebody spiritually, you can reach them intellectually, you can do a lot of different things, but God loves his people so much that he's trying to give all these uh, illustrations spiritually, intellectually. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, blood red, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we have five out of eight is repent so that you're not judged for your sins. You know, don't be crestfallen. Don't be depressed. Change. Now, sometimes we can go through, oh, like a self-humility, self-pity party, but it really isn't in our heart to change. You know, it's an emotional response. You can change. Eat the good of the land or be devoured by the sword. I don't know about you, but I'd rather eat the good of the land <laughs> if you gave me that choice. <laughs> but it might involve change, right? He speaks about colors here. Going from your sins are, are red, like a crimson, a deep red to complete white. And really, this is a picture of Christ on the cross. Even in, in the Lord's temporary atoning through the sacrifices, Leviticus 17, I mean, for thousands of years doing these things, it was always typifying Christ who would come and shed his blood for the remission of our sins so we could be clean in God's eyes. If you've ever seen a blood stain, especially on a white fabric, even if you, you got cut shaving and it drips onto your white dress shirt and you try to get it out, it can turn orange, it can turn, you've got some people looking at me, <laughs> you've tried to do this. I mean, if you don't whack that thing with bleach, <laughs> it's going to be hard to get that, that collar to the original color. Well, Jesus is the, is the bleaching agent. Without Christ, there's no way to get rid of our sins. And people try different ways and they make up ways, but, you know... Verse 18, he says, come now, let us reason together. That word reason in the Hebrew means to convince or to convict via a healthy debate. I love that. God gave us the ability to reason, right? And I tell you, we are fortunate because we live in a country still at this point, we're allowed to debate, we're allowed to reason, you know, my son is starting his first semester in college, and I'm looking at some of the training he's sending them. And I have to learn these terms because I haven't been to college in 30 years. And it said, you might see some information that will be a trigger warning. I have to look up trigger warning. Um, you might get upset. It might hurt your feelings. It's like, oh, my goodness. You know, 70 years ago, 18-year-olds were sent across the, the, the ocean to storm the beaches of Normandy to take enemy gunfire from the Nazis. Now we can't say anything that might offend them. And that's sad because we're starting to see this debate on college campuses. I read some hopeful articles that said some of the worst offenders, universities that are allowing free speech to be shut down, they're losing funding. People's like, I'm not sending my kid back there next year. You know, and, and I, I love, you know, it's so funny because we, we're so offended where our feelings are so hurt. You know, this times I like to debate people, you know, I like to debate cultists or, or haters or racists or whatever. I, I want to debate. I want to engage them. I want to try to convince them to my side. You know what I'm saying? And, oh, Pastor Joe, he raised his voice. I do with a smile. You know what I'm saying? I show my teeth <laughs> because I'm not mad. I'm just... I like to debate. 
If you, you guys who really know me personally, you know I like to debate. It's a lot of fun. But here's the truth, though. Let's just come reason. The truth is this. No matter who we're debating, God gave them free will. It's going to be by, by his spirit that's going to change the heart. I mean, we can get them things to chew on, but ultimately it's, he's going to do the work. So we don't want to be obnoxious. You know, I've had to learn some things over the years. <laughs> you don't want to be obnoxious. You want to be loving, but get your point across. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's my, my thing there. But God wants his people to understand. He wants them to open their minds, to open their hearts. He's God, for heaven's sake. Listen to him. Verse 21, we continue. How the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Wow. Six, Judah, your spiritual light is going out. I think what makes the United States great, listen, as a cop, I defended the Constitution for 25 years. And I think what makes our country great, and we were at our greatest moments when we were right with God, when we saw the evils within our own culture and said, this is wrong, this has to change. And you know what? Judah, her light was going out too. God said there was justice here. There were people getting helped. There were poor people. You know, the widows don't even bring their case before the courts anymore because they know if they don't have a bribe, they're not going to win their case. That's horrible when the system is stacked against the common person. You know, God had a real problem. You know, you guys were supposed to be a light to the Gentile nations. Instead, you become, instead of a faithful bride, you become a harlot. It's very strong language. And this was a, a symptom of a deeper problem. The people were okay with it too. It wasn't just the kings and the leaders. Everybody was going along with this. You know, I mean, it's sad today, even in, in our political system, we're seeing just, we're seeing, it's been around for a while, corruption in both parties. And we get to vote. And sometimes we, you know, somebody was making fun, it was a political show, making fun of New Jersey voters and said they have a high tolerance for corruption. Even the person who's indicted and, and the, the evidence is mounting, millions of people still vote for that person. It's a symptom of a deeper problem, you know? Revival starts with individuals. It's, I'll just say this, it starts with me, it starts with you, it starts with you, and then it, it just it spreads. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Neighborhoods change, communities change, families change. And what the politicians see is, you know, I don't know if I can get away with that. Because these people are just, what's, what's up with them, you know? They're, they're doing the right thing with these goody two-shoes. Maybe I'll go to another state and try that, you know? I mean, I would just, this is, this is a place, man. I mean, New Jersey, <laughs> the Northeast, there's a lot of stuff going on that's not good. But we continue, verse 24, last few verses Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. 
You know, when people of God read this, we should be seeing this too as Christians. You know, we, we, we may be praying, we may be doing the right thing, and we may still see nothing change in society. But it doesn't mean we quit. We keep going. See, this was, this was to the faithful. This is also to us. This is a, a point in our future. The Lord's second coming, his millennial kingdom where he rules righteously. That's going to be a great thing to see. He's going to depose all the, the evil worldly leaders. There's going to be a whole lot of them that he's deposing. And we're going to, at some point, get to see this. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth tree. These were sites of pagan worship, which you have desired. And you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. For you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. Now, if you're new to the scripture, some have trouble with this. They struggle with this. Now, remember, if you are in a relationship with somebody especially if you're married, and you decide, well, on the side, I'm going to go be with somebody else. And that spouse, your faithful spouse, finds out. Do you think that things are going to change? Oh, you bet they're going to change. Oh, they're certainly going to change, and they should change. Because there's a bond, there's a covenant. And back in those days, the people collectively was supposed to be God's bride. And they kept seeking other things out. They kept, not only were they doing bad things, but their representation of God was horrible. So he had to fix it. Now, at any point in time, they back then and we today, anybody here today can repent. They can change. I want to come to Christ. This doesn't apply to you. It's all gone. Because you've come from darkness into the light. But this is number seven out of eight. Judgment has to come to Judah, but restoration will come as well. And he talks about his adversaries. I didn't know until I was on this side that I was his adversary. If you haven't trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, he still sees the sins that you commit that separate you from him. However, your sins are blood red, but they could be made white as snow. Jesus Christ already did that on the cross. He says a few things that are interesting that maybe in our vernacular or their vernacular is like, well, what does that mean? He says, your silver has become dross. When you take a silver in the metallurgic process or gold or any precious metal, you try to take the impurities out of it and it's a, a, a very long process of boiling and dross or the garbage basically comes to the top, the slag, and they take it off and discard it. They cool it down. They do this a few times until that precious metal becomes purified and beautiful. What he's saying to the people is, you know, you used to be silver. You used to be the faithful bride. Remember all the pictures. But now you're silver mixed with dross. Your wine is mixed with water. Wine at times was a picture of the Holy Spirit. You're becoming diluted. You're compromising. Compromising. However, we are going to see or we do see the second coming um, in this. And in chapter 2, next Sunday, we're going to see more of the second coming, more of that picture of hope. And here's the bottom line, folks. Eight, 
the conclusion, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And God is a God of justice. What is injustice? When we see some people get a different set of justice than other people, based on whatever, favoritism, money, you know, politicking, we hate that. Because even sinners that haven't come to faith in Christ have a deep sense of justice, and it bothers them to see inequities. And as believers, it bothers us even more. But God is a God of justice. We're all in the same playing field. And we all have the same access to God as each other, regardless of what we have in the bank or who we know or whatever, what family bloodline we're from. And similar to the Judahites, turning to religion doesn't save us. For some, it makes them feel good. But that's not the answer. What is the answer? The answer is repentance. And let me sum up in one scripture what it means for our sins to be red and to be beautiful, um, a white like we've never seen. It's, and it's not a color, it's, a, it's an image, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that basically means that when Christ was on that cross and he died for our sins, that when we believe in that, that sacrifice, remember, Christ bore the sins, your sins, my sins, even the sins that we haven't committed yet. So while Christ was on the cross, the Father had to moment, momentarily turn away and not look because of the amount of... It's just hard to believe. It's hard to fathom. But when we believe in him, we took the Lord's identity, right? That's the switching that goes on here. On the cross, he looked like me in my sinful state, which could never get me into heaven. But when I trusted him some 24, 25 years ago, in that moment, I actually looked like him perfect what he looked like before he was on the cross and the same thing with you all so this is a beautiful picture of what god does right so let me leave you with this this is going to be tough going through this the old testament prophetic books sometimes are not easy to swallow but the hope is for god's people and for us is that he's provide a remedy for them it was a typification pointing to what Jesus would do on the cross. For us, we're actually looking back. For them, they looked forward to Jesus. We look back because it happened in our past. Trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, all the judgments that are listed there, it's not for us. It's not for anyone who's trusted Christ because in his eyes, we're clean. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.